Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast for Monday, March 27th, 2023. I'm Lou DeVizio. It's an exciting day here at NMPBS. We're welcoming in our new executive producer for public affairs, Jeff Proctor. He's going to be taking over for Kevin McDonald, who you know well if you've been listening to this podcast uh, for the past year or more. We're excited as a station, but I'm also personally really looking forward to working with someone with a journalistic resume like Jeff. If you've been dialed into the New Mexico news scene for any amount of time, you probably know him and his work. But if not, you can look back at his contributions in New Mexico In-Depth, the Albuquerque Journal, KRQE, KOB-TV, here at NMPBS, and most recently with the Santa Fe Reporter. So please join me in welcoming Jeff and stay tuned for more to come from our team. For now, let's get to the headlines impacting New Mexicans. Wildlife in New Mexico could soon have a safe way to cross a major state highway known for vehicle-animal collisions. The highway overpasses one initiative included in two bills signed by Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham last week. The bills also set aside $100 million for conservation products. According to reporting from the Associated Press, the state's first wildlife bridge will likely be built over State Highway 550 at Santa Ana Pueblo, just north of Cuba. The AP spoke to Glenn Harper, manager of the Santa Ana Pueblo Range and Wildlife Division, who says the Pueblo is committed to establishing safe corridors for wildlife. He says the Pueblo already shared GPS tracking data when state agencies were prioritizing locations for wildlife bridges. The state legislature commissioned the plan in 2019. Albuquerque police officers will soon undergo 40 hours of training aimed at avoiding the use of deadly force in scenarios where it might not be required. According to reporting from Matthew Risen from the Albuquerque Journal, the training comes after a months-long review of 2022 officer-involved shootings by a working group of APD leadership. APD saw a record-setting 18 police shootings in 2022. Deputy Chief of Compliance Corey Lowe told the Journal the training will focus on identifying a weapon or threat and the process for officers to change to a less lethal weapon in certain situations. You can read Matthew Risen's full story on the Albuquerque Journal homepage. I've also included a link in the description of this podcast. U.S. regulators have delayed a decision on whether to send tons of nuclear waste here to New Mexico. The new... The Nuclear Regulatory Commission says it needs more time to wrap up a final safety report on the multi-billion dollar complex planned by the New Jersey-based Holtec International for southeastern New Mexico. That facility would house waste from around the country. The announcement comes days after lawmakers approved legislation aimed at stopping the project. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham last week asked the NRC to suspend its decision. I wanted to start the podcast this week with a conversation on how this legislative session fared in women's issues. Earlier this week, Jean Grant sat down with Martha Burke, political psychologist, author, and host of the podcast Real Time with Martha Burke, to ask about abortion rights, rebate checks, and the failure of paid family leave. We aired an abbreviated version of this conversation on New Mexico in Focus this past Friday. This is the entire 18-minute discussion. Here's Jean. Martha Burke, thank you for being with us today. Cover some issues affecting women's issues here in New Mexico. Talk about some of those things. One of the biggest headlines is New Mexico's codified abortion rights. You've been on the show many times talking about this over the years. I'm curious, House Bill 7 passed. It was signed by the governor, of course, before the session ended, which was very interesting to me. Did you feel it was going to pass that easily looking back? 
Yeah, I did. Mm -hmm. uh, the governor has always been strongly pro-choice. Mm -hmm. And of course, the Democrats have a good strong majority in both houses mm -hmm. in the legislature. So I was not surprised that yeah. it passed. Uh, I was a little surprised that there was not more overt protest at the roundhouse. Ah, uh, by, by who? Well, mm -hmm. by the anti-abortion gotcha. folks. Yeah. Uh, maybe the bill snuck in, I don't know, but right. it seemed to get plenty of publicity. Is this a, Would you consider this a major win for Governor Lujan Grisham? She's been talking about this for a while, but it's happened. Well, I think mm -hmm. it is a win. Uh, how major, we will see, because right. what has happened, Gene, is they haven't really stopped the jurisdictions from putting these barriers up. They've slowed it down. Right. And so I don't know yet whether it will be a major win or whether it will be a barrier. The thing, the whole thing kind of opens itself up to litigation right. that could last for years. For example, mm -hmm. a person who is denied an abortion or gender affirming care could bring a lawsuit. Mm -hmm. Well, how likely is that to happen for an individual? And how long would that take to litigate? Probably years. Right. So it is a victory, but it's not a slam dunk. It's an interesting uh, situation when you think about what House Bill 7 does, which is obviously empowers the state, state AG or a local DA the right to initiate a civil lawsuit in district court. Uh, it, it, it's very hard to predict the future, as you just mentioned. But I'm curious how you see local DAs approaching this. It's been dropped in their lap for some you know, places, a Roosevelt County, Eunice, other places that have passed these ordinances. How does a DA manage this? This is a very well, difficult position. I think it's interesting because the way it's worded, it allows the DAs to do it, it does not compel. Gotcha, gotcha. And so many of them, or several of them, may decide based on local politics or their own proclivities that they're just not gonna touch it. Mm -hmm. And that, again, Gene, puts it back down to the victims of this restrictive legislation of, that the counties and some cities are trying to pass or have passed. Right. And so it's gonna be interesting to yeah. see, but I don't see the DAs jumping into this with both feet. Mm -hmm. How about um, our, our, our Attorney General? Again, it's hard to predict, but these are political issues. And depending on if it's a campaign season or not, do you see what I mean? There's, there's all kinds of ways this could kind of flow back and forth. Not to ask a prediction, but can you see it in a situation where a DA would wander into, I'm sorry, your attorney general would wander into a, uh, you know, a DA's just district who does not want to do this? Yeah, yeah. I, th I can see that. And okay. again, it's gonna be a push of me, pull of me. Right. Uh, the DA is going to be conflicted, maybe not on personal views, but just on how far should they go. We already know that abortion is legal in the state of New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And what these counties and cities have done is they haven't prohibited abortion. Right. What they've done is make it so hard for a clinic to come in that the clinic's gonna say, we don't need this. Right. We've got plenty of other problems without having to get into years of litigation with a city or county. Mm -hmm. So it's effectively limiting access to abortion without doing so directly. Right. We'll see how that plays out, like you say. It's gonna be very interesting. Uh, another, uh, for families, another important issue was, of course, uh, the wide-ranging tax package that did pass through the legislature included uh, $500 tax rebate payments for individuals and 1,000 payments for couples. It's less than the 750 that the governor wanted, but I'm curious how you feel this is 
impactful on, we have so many households here headed by women. Absolutely. So many as a percentage. Is $500 a, a, a game changer for them or is it? For some people it will be, okay. Jean. Mm -hmm. For some people it's groceries for a month. Right. You know, gasoline to get to work. So yes, it will. And you're very correct mm -hmm. because most low wage workers are women. Right. And the lowest low wage women are women of color, which right. as we know in this state means mostly Hispanic and indigenous women mm -hmm. who are so far behind on pay equity. Indigenous women have to wait until November of this year mm -hmm. to reach the earnings that white men made by the end of last year. Wow. Now that is a shameful statistic. Right. But so yeah, $500, Maybe to some of us that are a little more fortunate, it's not a game changer, right. but it could be for a single mom with a couple of kids trying to keep them in school, right. make sure they have decent clothing to wear and so forth. I appreciate that, absolutely. $500, a lot of money, a lot of households here for sure. Um, what, we, what didn't pass, what was interesting, was the uh, paid family leave bill. And that could have been a, a game changer, I'll use the, the word, for families certainly. Was there too big a bite trying to be taken here, or is this something we can sneak up on perhaps in legislators, legislatures of the future? Well, I think, it, I think it's both. Okay. I think it's both. It seemed draconian to the businesses that did not want it. We only have in, in the whole United States 11 states that have paid family leave. Mm -hmm. Now, it has been shown, although this is apparently not convincing to employers, mm -hmm. that it does foster more loyalty to the company. Right. The, the workers are more satisfied and not at, don't tend to leave and go for another job and that sort of thing. Right. They say they can't afford it. Well, Gene, we, we hear this argument all the time. Businesses have a right to make a profit. Mm -hmm. That isn't true. They have a right to try to make a profit. If they had an absolute right to make a profit, we could just go back to slavery. Right, right. So yeah. there has to be some push and pull. I think it was good that the bill came up. Mm -hmm. I think it will be back, of course. Most of the states that have it now, it took several years. I bet. And people yeah. have to get used to the idea, oh gee, could we really have that? Right. I mean, 12 weeks is a big, Bitter pill 12 for a weeks lot of is big, and that might be something that has to be bargained down. Right. right. Uh, because if you started with, say, four weeks, that would still be huge to most of the workers in this state. Mm -hmm. And I think 12 weeks was a big bite, and that probably uh, was a big factor in the extreme opposition. Was there something to be gleaned from the amount of opposition that coalesced very quickly on this bill and was very loud? I mean, we know the lobby system, but business really did come together. Does this speak to the nature of the fight in the future? Absolutely, it does, because businesses, I mean, let's face it, I'm not anti-business. Sure. I know you're not either. Mm -hmm. And COVID has taken a big, bite out of not only profits, but right. just the ability to stay in business. Mm -hmm. So I do understand why when they hear 12 weeks, they think that's a fourth of the year. Right. And we can't afford that, and I think they're correct. Mm -hmm. uh, but on the other hand, the families who do give their time, 
blood, sweat, and tears, so forth, to right. the companies do deserve some consideration. So there's got to be a middle ground. Mm -hmm. I think that will come back. It'll come back with a lesser period of time, may take two or three sessions, sure. but eventually it'll happen. Mm -hmm. Another issue, uh, final issue that's developed into a woman's issue, if I might be so bold, is the governor's appointee for Secretary of Indian Affairs. We talked about it on the show a few weeks ago. Um, James Mountain's daughter wrote an op-ed defending her dad and asking for his support for the position. And of course, uh, the governor is uh, keeping him on. He is now in the position, just not confirmed. And we'll see what happens. I'm curious if you want to pull back the lens a little bit in this whole thing. I'm curious your take on it. We've got the letter from the daughter, but the initial shock of the governor's announcement of this appointment was just heard around the state. I've never really seen anything like it. I'm curious what you made of that. I was puzzled as heck yeah. about it. Uh, I don't see the utility of it for the governor. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it makes her look bad. It makes it look like a patronage deal, right. uh, especially when the opposition surfaced. As far as the daughter will find, we all love our dads. We try to show our dad and mom's best sides to the world. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't blame the daughter for writing the letter. Uh, I do have an issue with the governor mm -hmm. for sticking, well, for doing it in the first place. Mm -hmm. There was no reason to do this controversial appointment or near appointment right. in the first place. Right. Why do that? It, as uh, it was said on our last discussion of this, the optics are terrible. Right. What was the reason? We don't know. The indigenous community is up in arms about it, appropriately so. Mm -hmm. He can serve now without being confirmed. That's right. The next opportunity is January 2024. Wow. So that is more than half the year. Mm -hmm. He's going to serve under a, what I might call a public indictment. Right. Uh, for what he has done but not been convicted of. And that's the other thing, yes. Gene. Yeah. People are trying to equate um, lack of sufficient evidence with exoneration. Right. It is not the same thing. Right. There is still a cloud over the sky. The indigenous women's community particularly has asked that a indigenous woman right. be appointed to this uh, position and I think they're on to something right. there. Reminding the folks he's in the position paying $169,000 a year as a matter of fact and he's unconfirmed. It's actually an interesting scenario. Um, the process, um, I, I gotta go back to this process of not having that Senate vote. Should the governor perhaps have anticipated that the legislature was not just not going to touch it as soon as it came out and what would have been her better move uh, in your view as opposed to letting him just kind of kind of drift through the process, so to speak. Well, her better move would have been not to do it in the first place. Yeah. That shows either lack of diligence or a loyalty issue that we are unaware of, Jean. Mm -hmm. And I think the governor needs to answer for that. Mm -hmm. She's been pretty much radio silence right. uh, since this. She's just letting it ride. Uh, did she know that it, he would not be confirmed? Did she? Right know that he could serve anyway. The big salary is an issue to me. Uh, is there a personal indebtedness here of some kind? Who knows? Right. Uh, or is it merely not paying close enough attention? And then once you make a move like that, feeling the need to defend it, even if it's with silence, yeah. which is what's happening right now. 
Martha, I do want to ask you, you know, we've talked about some important subjects here that affect women and families, certainly, but there are always other bills that either pass or don't pass that have implications for women here that may not necessarily look like it's a direct connection. So I'm curious of the bills you've been following, of the, of the ones that either passed or didn't pass that affect women, what we're also looking at as well this session. Well, the gun issue right. is definitely a women's issue. Over half of the intimate partner homicides in this country are committed with a gun. Ah. And most of the victims are female. Wow. So easy access to a gun. Somebody gets mad, has an argument with their spouse. Yeah. They run over the gun store. A waiting period is not unreasonable. Mm -hmm. As we have talked about in the past, Gene, if you know you're going, you know when hunting season right. is, you That's know, right. you don't decide overnight, <laughs> oh, I'm going to go buy a gun right. and go hunting tomorrow. That's mm -hmm. ridiculous. Mm -hmm. uh, so this will affect women in the long run uh -huh. that we don't have a waiting period. Maybe two weeks was too long. Okay. I don't know that, but uh, some kind of waiting period, let's call it a cooling off period sure. for people that are inclined to commit mayhem with a gun. If you're a lawful citizen that wants to go hunting or target shooting, seems to me you could wait a few days, right. you know, to get hold of that gun. And the other thing that did pass was Pamela Herndon's bill about kids' access to a gun. Yeah, that's a big uh, one. And I was very glad to see that. Mm -hmm. The penalties are interesting because if the kid doesn't do anything lethal with it, uh, it's a misdemeanor uh -huh. for the kid to have access to it. If the kid does, as one kid did in another state, actually shoot his teacher, he was a six-year-old, yeah. uh, then it becomes a fourth-degree felony. I see. And so I think that's quite a divergent uh, punishment for it, but I was glad to see it. It's a good bill. Overall, the gun issue was, was uh, hotly debated, certainly, as we might expect, but we also have from legislatures past, red flag laws that we've got chiefs of police in certain places saying they're not going to enforce them. Where does this all sort of fit together in the gun issue? It, 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 meaning there's been a sweep over the past maybe two or three sessions of folks really trying hard in this gun thing. Are, are you feeling like there's some progress being made or are we still in the same place? Well, no, I think we're making progress. I think it's way too slow. Okay. And of course, my ideas about this are well known. Sure. But Gene, the influence of the National Rifle Association in this country is not going away. Right. It's getting stronger in many states. Mm -hmm. I don't know about New Mexico specifically, but as you say, some law enforcement mm -hmm. are on the wrong side of this issue, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And so I think we have to keep trying. Mm -hmm. But the question is, how many kids are gonna be killed? How many women are gonna be killed? Uh, who are the primary victims of domestic violence uh, before we actually do something. Mm -hmm. Interesting one from out of right field here. Maybe it's a women's issue, maybe not, but I'm always, you know me well enough, uh, my ideas about a full-time legislature versus the system we have now. Would some of the issues that you've been following for women's issues have a better chance of passing if we had a full-time legislative scheme where people could actually talk about these things for a long period of time? I'm wondering if the brevity of our sessions is actually hurting progress on women's issues here. I think it's hurting women's issues and other issues mm -hmm. because what we have now is sort of a yearly dance. Right. Hurry, hurry, hurry. Yes. 
throw up the barriers, do something at the last minute that may not be the best interest of the constituents or the best bills. But you're going to do a compromise in a 12-hour period because the hammer's going to fall. That's, right. That's not good. We need, you know, the paid legislature idea is a good one. A lot of people can't, they might be very good public servants, mm -hmm. but they can't afford it. Mm -hmm. And this is something that I think needs to be revisited, but this hurry up and wait and do something at the last minute cannot be good in the long run, no matter which side you're on. That's right. We need more contemplative time. Yep. Yeah, I'm with that 100%. My last question, you know, again, it may seem like outside of women's issues, of all issues boil down to women's issues at some level. I mean, I think you've taught us that over time. But the idea that a full-time legislator might even afford a difference in the relationship with the governor's office and how those people, I'm thinking about women running more in a full-time legislative scheme. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. it, you know, when you have time to really discuss things and really grind them, I, the women I know, that's appealing oh, yeah. to run for office, for that kind of office. I think it would be appealing. Mm -hmm. I think you have to have enough time to do that relationship with the governor and right. have her be receptive to it. Right. Uh, the governor is herself stressed a lot uh, during these sessions because she's got a lot on her plate. Mm -hmm. But I think if you had this, uh, you know, back to the mountain, the James Mountain issue, sure. there might have been more time for some dialogue That's there. Right. That's right. And so one, th one thing I just want to touch on, Gene, that, that did happen, and uh, you may not have time to discuss this very much, but this business about uh, making election day a school holiday, please, that's definitely a women's issue. Yes. Who's going to watch the kid? Yeah. Think of yourself as a single mother. You maybe you can't go vote that day because you got to make arrangements for the kid. They're not going to be in school. It doesn't make any sense. Interesting. It was all about the Saturday for the longest time. We wanted to have election day on a Saturday because of that very issue. But exactly. That's interesting. Uh, Martha Burke, political psychologist, author, and host of the podcast Real Time with Martha Burke. Thank you for coming down. We do this traditionally after every session, and I always enjoy them. Thank you for your insights. Thank you for having me here, Gene. Always. It's always a pleasure. We really like you here at New Mexico PBS. Thank you so much, Martha. Thanks to Gene and Martha Burke for that conversation. A quick point of clarification when it comes to paid family leave. When Martha talked about the burden for businesses at 12 weeks of paid leave versus four weeks, she was speaking about doing without employees for that period of time, not a specific monetary cost to the employer. The proposal called for the creation of an insurance fund that businesses would pay into. That fund would then cover the salaries of the workers on leave. Now, that was just one of hundreds of bills that failed in the roundhouse, but hundreds more made it through. In fact, the governor is considering more than 200 pieces of legislation passed by the state legislature. Right now on the podcast, Gene and the Line Opinion Panel for the week take a closer look at the bills that made it through. Joining Gene on the line this week are three New Mexico journalists, Albuquerque Journal staff writer Dan McKay, editorial page editor at the Santa Fe New Mexican, Inez Russell Gomez, and first-time panelist and editor at Source New Mexico, Sean Griswold. All right, we begin this week looking at what bills made their way through the 60-day legislative session and have been sent to the governor's desk. This year, lawmakers passed 241 bills, and the governor has until April 7th to sign or veto that legislation. 
Any bills left unsigned after that date, of course, will be considered pocket vetoed and move no more. Now, addressing crime has been key to the state's administration this year. In her State of the State address, you might recall Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham called for a ban on assault weapons, an end to the straw purchases of guns, and for the passage of a safe storage gun bill. In the second week of the session, she announced the creation of a business public safety council and pushed for legislation focused on targeting organized retail crime that we've talked about here on the show. We saw successful action on all of those fronts by the end of last week. We'll talk about what didn't get done in our second segment, but focusing on those crime bills I just mentioned that did pass. Dan, what stands out to you here? Were there any meaningful steps taken uh, with these crime bills or perhaps a sense of maybe try to get too much done at once? What's your sense of how it all shook out? Um, I, I think that the biggest crime bill that made it across the finish line was the organized retail crime. Yep. Um, basically, the state wants to is creating new crimes, uh, new penalties intended to crack down on people who, you know, sort of terrorize these grocery stores and big box stores and and you know, walk out with 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 um, items. Then maybe they hit a bunch of stores all at once, and right. this this law will help them kind of aggregate what they've taken and um, sort of. The goal is to have more appropriate penalties. I think that's probably the main one that got through mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. that sort of the business community and some of the public safety folks were really looking for. Um, you know, one of the big casualties is, you know, there's this perennial debate over pretrial release and pretrial detention. Um, those bills really didn't go anywhere. Um, you know, there are different attempts to either change the Constitution or pass a law or do right. different things. Those are kind of you know, just they've run into the same hurdles every session. I don't know what will change on that front, but um, organized there. retail crime is probably the, the biggest one on my mind. It seemed like there was a lot of agreement going into the session on that, all facets of law enforcement. I mean, nobody was really against this bill. It's a huge problem here in New Mexico and, and of course, all over the state. Uh, Sean, interestingly, House Bill 5, Benny's bill, you know, makes it a crime for anyone to make a firearm negligently accessible to a minor. Second go um, for this bill. Interesting, the Source New Mexico did some good coverage on this. It, the sense of the argument on this bill, it took us two laps, meaning it, it came up last session. What was the problem here? It seems pretty logical just to lock up guns. What's yeah, the issue? And, and of course, you know, it, I think it starts when you look at the constitutionality of, you know, mm -hmm. gun legislation. And while this is a crime prevention measure, and that's how it was pitched, What's interesting is, in part of our job, is that we get to kind of follow the minutia, and you see how you know crime packages stall and fail in committees. Right. And so, for me, one of the most interesting ways to see how these bills fail is when you watch the Senate Judiciary Committee. Mm. Um, anybody who is like a, a legal scholar or a law student who wants to follow like why these bills don't go anywhere, right. Joseph Cervantes, a senator from Las uh, Cruces gives essentially a constitutional argument as to like why these bills are unconstitutional. And that's where they ultimately end up stalling. And so following those committees and understanding like that those bills are not gonna get there because they just don't meet the state constitutional needs and requirements mm -hmm. is kind of how we understand this. And for this bill to get passed though, um, you know, there was not an essential like, you know, gun lobby effort that was, you know, pro proposing against it. Mm -hmm. We also understood, you know, because of um, the, the emotional capacity of Benny Hargrove, you know, the student who was shot here at Washington Middle School just across the street from where we are down uh, here in downtown Albuquerque, mm -hmm. um, there was a, a, a quick sense of urgency. You know, yeah. people have a hard time arguing, arguing against, you know, making gun safety measures that protect our schools. Right. And ultimately, that was part of the argument, but it could essentially also protect, you know, youth and minors as, as they have access to guns in the this city. This would have had to have Republican support mm -hmm. to pass. Interesting, like, there, there was a little bit, wasn't there? There was, yeah. yeah. That was the one that did, definitely did not have an issue when it came with Republican support on it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Inez, uh, glad to have you here, by the way, always, always. Uh, Senate Bill 64, abolish, abolishing life sentences without parole for children sentenced as adults. I, it was an interesting debate, wasn't it? You know, this idea of how long a child should serve before they become eligible was a real angst point for a lot of people, because that's a lot of time if we're talking after serving anywhere between 15 to 25 years of their sentences, depending on the severity. I'm curious your thoughts on how that came about, the arguments, and how it eventually got passed, actually. What I found so interesting about this bill is mm -hmm. it, it shows how legislation is introduced and then between sessions you work on it some more because it failed last time because the district attorneys were against it, right. families of people who'd been hurt in really horrific yeah. crimes were against it. Mm -hmm. And instead of being defensive about it and just maybe trying to push it through or, or you know, wrangle to get it passed, they withdrew it. Right. And they came back and they worked on it to make it more palatable mm -hmm. to everybody mm -hmm to respect the pain of victims and to understand the needs of prosecutors, right. but also to keep focusing on the idea that everybody has this life to live and right. we can be redeemed. Right. And when you think about it, serving 20 years is still a very long sentence. If you, get, right. if you get sent in when you're 15, right. you don't get out after 20 years, you just get a chance at a hearing. Right. And it'll be up to you in prison with hopefully some resources to become a better person and to then go live your life in a way right. that makes a contribution to society. And that was part of the argument, if you're spending 15 years in prison, your chance at rehabilitation, the way we have it set up now, right. not saying the future, but the way it is now, it's not very hopeful. Um, let me ask you, Dan, let me, uh, and Sean, actually, we go to uh, you on this one. Also included in the Voting Rights Bill um, is the Native American Voting Rights Act, takes a number of steps to make voting easier for people living on tribal lands. Again, this has been out there for quite a while, but it got done. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of folks, this is actually a very big deal to get this done. I'm curious your sense of this bill as well. Yeah, and mm -hmm. watching that debate last year, that was the final story we did on the legislature in the 30 day ah. when we saw this bill filibustered uh, with uh, um, one of our senators, you know, speaking about baseball and a whole bunch of other things for a right. long time to kill the bill, yeah. um, which we saw this year with a couple other pieces of legislation. But I think with the voting rights bill this time, you just saw an incredible coalition of individuals from all across the state. You had support from Secretary of State Maggie Toulouse Oliver. Mm -hmm. This was also something that was prominent on the governor's agenda to get passed. Um, when it comes to the Native American Voting Rights Act, I think that's another prominent coalition of people you're starting to see here is, um, you know, prominent political strength with Native American communities right. that are a coalition of, you know, 23 tribes. It's hard to get 23 people to agree on anything. And you have Good 23 point. different governments agreeing that we need this legislation to make our voting easier. And so one of the key elements you're going to see out of it is you're going to be able to align tribal elections with general elections okay. or primary elections. Because okay. as we, at, like for instance, this year you had your, or sorry, last year when you had the election cycle, the, you know, the, the election that you vote one time when you're voting for your state representative or congressional representative, right. then next week you vote for your tribal representative. So now they're gonna align those mm -hmm. dates so it's making it easier as the argument for people to vote mm -hmm. um, for you know, not only their local communities but also the, the local governments that they have to support. That's right. Let me bounce to Dan on this one. Uh, follow up a little bit to what Inez and I were just talking about, this idea of uh, released felons who previously had to complete their entire sentence, including parole and probation before they could vote, now they can. And it's interesting, it's not just that, the New Mexico Voting Rights Act, in case you're not familiar with this uh, as viewers, uh, allowing ex-convicts to vote at their release, at their release from jail or prison. A lot of pushback on this from conservatives and you know, a lot of idea that could be a lot of game playing. We're talking about potentially uh, over 10,000 people perhaps which could be very changing in certain districts, uh, depending on close votes and things. Your sense of how the, the 
meandering water went on this one, you know, the arguments. What did you hear when, on, during this one? Um, well, I think there's just a concern that, um, you know, New Mexico does allow felons already before this law to, re to restore their voting rights, but that it was a really cumbersome process that didn't really work. Right. That um, even somebody uh, who'd been in prison would present their paperwork, um, uh, you know, showing that they'd completed their full sentence at a county clerk's office and that still they would be denied and they were just having a lot of trouble making this work in a practical sense. So, so this bill basically says, you know, as you're leaving, we can, you know, make sure you're registered to vote, right. et cetera. You know, you, you can't vote while you're in prison, but, right. um, yeah. you know, as you're exiting incarceration, we'll make sure that you're registered um, and that your rights are restored and you won't have to fool with any of that. Mm -hmm. So um, in some ways, it's kind of a simplification of what we had before. Mm -hmm. um, you know, kind of the argument against it from conservatives was, well, you know, you haven't finished your sentence until you've um, completed parole or, right. or probation or whatever. So that was kind of the pushback. But that was, um, that's an important part of the bill and it certainly could, um, you know, increase participation that's among right. this group. That's right. Two drop boxes at every location. Isn't that interesting <laughs> to accommodate this? Um, you know, the idea, again, the idea that um, uh, Convicts, and by the way, I should mention the 11,000 number I got from Source New Mexico. I quoted, you know, the over 10,000, so I want to ask you about this. But again, this argument about, you know, we, we have a lot of folks, let's put it bluntly, who need a second chance in life sometimes. And voting can be a big part of that. It makes you feel better. It makes you feel like you're connected to your country. You're not just a pariah because you might have made a mistake earlier in life. Any downside to this in your view? I never see a downside to more people voting personally. Right. And I, I think that when you allow full citizenship and full participation, that means you're less likely to do bad things because right. if you're part of society, why would you hurt it? Thank you, exactly right. Now, Sean, to your reporting uh, and the source of the 11,000, that's a lot of people, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And I've, I'm already reading people worried about this could lead to shenanigans. Again, in the reporting at Source NM, what, what, what did you guys find as a possibility on that. Well, I mean, a lot of people in New Mexico are incarcerated. That's right. just the history of what the state is, and we have to ultimately come to terms with the fact that we have an entire generations of people who have either served time, have lived mm -hmm. inside, or are currently living inside. And as Inez was saying, it's very important to bring back your civility. And so getting the right to vote is your first participation in society. Mm -hmm. People that are incarcerated, that are inside, are ultimately, they pay attention, they read. They know that there's so much policy that's happening around them, discussions, kind of like right now where we're talking about these individuals, right. yeah. but they don't, can't participate. That's right. And so, you know, the, if, if there is going to be any type of shenanigans, that's going to be something to be interesting to follow with this whole voting rights bill is how it's going to be applied uh. um, overall. And so, you know, we're not going to see that until as we follow this law and as we see the applications from the Secretary of State and local county clerks. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's also part of an element where people are, are suggesting things could go wrong as part of this whole election integrity concern. Right. Where individuals are just starting to question the results of elections and even questioning the idea that our elections, we shouldn't trust That's them. Right. And That's where right. does that come from? You know, it comes yeah. from an idea where ultimately a, a section of people who have ultimately losing elections yeah. very consistently. That's a very good point there. Appreciate that pickup. Uh, Inez, let's talk about this, House Bill 7. We now have some um, clarity on abortion okay. here in New Mexico. This has been a big raging issue across the country, as we all know, different states are, are you know, trying to figure out where they stand after last year's fall of Roe v. Wade. The governor got a lot on this issue. It, was it just a timing thing, just the timing's right, or what happened here? I think it was her clear leadership and her yeah. approach. And I also think that there are a lot of women 
in the legislature. Right. And we have a lot of young women who are still fertile and they right. know right. what it's like to be pregnant, to want their baby, to maybe not be able to take care of a baby. Mm -hmm. And I really think that you see the priorities of the legislature are changing because of this whole class of representatives and uh, senators right. who have been pregnant and are moms and understand the importance of it. Mm -hmm. And they also, I think, are very respectful of uh, gender diversity because uh, our legislation is also protecting, you know, transgender, gay, right. lesbian, all of that. That's right. And where other states in the country are becoming, you know, you're a pariah in those states, mm -hmm. we're going to be a place where people can be themselves and be welcomed and loved. And I think I could not be prouder of what New Mexico did in that area in mm -hmm. terms of welcoming people. Took a couple of years, but I got there. Yep. Dan, I want to steal just one more quick minute with you. This collegiality thing we keep reading about that everybody just got along so well in this session. I'm not sure what that all means at the end of the day, but how did you how did you take that? Was it as collegial as people are trying to make it seem or was, was it really that kumbaya? I would say, I mean, there's definitely a lot of combat, like yeah. procedural combat, you know, partisan, pr really fierce partisan debates. Sure. Um, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, on the, on the House side, it's typically been the more partisan chamber, but um, there was, like I said, new leadership. I think there may be less, um, you know, bridges that haven't been burned yet, so they're able to collaborate. Um, you know, uh, as Inez was saying, you know, there's also, um, you know, the composition of the chambers is changing. The House has more women than it's ever had before. Um, I think that has definitely uh, shaped the environment. Um, and then you just touched on the Second Chance Bill, the Juvenile Life Bill. Um, you know, that was a bill that was amended to and picked up some bipartisan Republican support. So I think, you know, personality-wise, maybe you're seeing there are some instances where people, instead of, you know, just trying to push things through with sure. a bare majority, they're they're making efforts to, to yeah. pick up some Republican votes, That's too. That's a good point there. Um, is it going to last, do you think? <laughs> That's an excellent question. <laughs> um, you know, the next year, you know, it'll be an election year. Right. Every legislator will be on the ballot. You know, I think you do typically see maybe some increase in partisan tension. Um, I don't know whether it'll last. Yeah, it's a good point there. Thanks to Gene and the panel. I'm going to throw things right back to them for a discussion on some of the notable pieces of legislation that didn't pass this session. Here's Gene. Nearly 1,100 bills were introduced during this year's 60-day session, not to mention the hundreds of resolutions and memorials brought forth by lawmakers. Now, although the vast majority of these proposals failed to make it out of the roundhouse, several failed bills have caught our attention. We return now again to propose the proposed crime bills. In her state of the state address, the governor received a standing ovation, if you remember this, for her call to ban all assault weapons, House Bill 101, which would have banned the possession, manufacturing, sale, or transfer of assault weapons and large capacity magazines, died in committee and never received a vote from the House or the Senate. Now, Daniel, I'll start with you on this one. What happened to this bill? Was this bill destined to fail from the beginning? Or is the governor, you know, on a, on a ban on all assault weapons is a very deep subject. You're not going to wrestle to the ground in 60 days. What, what happened here? Yes, it was probably destined to fail from the yeah. beginning. Um, I, you know, in New Mexico, um, you know, some of these gun restrictions are um, Democrats look skeptically on. You know, mm -hmm. the, um, the safe storage bill, um, you know, there were quite a few Democrats who crossed the, the line and voted with Republicans against it. Yep. You know, the assault weapons ban, um, it ran into, you know, a new 
a new legal environment with Supreme Court decisions. Um, and I think there was some concern about whether it went too far and violated Second Amendment rights. You know, even Democrats were raising that issue. And then it, it also has a lot of kind of technical challenges um, around how do you define an assault weapon? Um, you know, how do you define these attachments? You know, things like that um, mm -hmm. that make, made it just sort of really tricky to get it through. So um, yeah, that one is one that, um, I think is probably less likely among the gun bills that failed mm -hmm. to advance in the near future. Mm -hmm. It just um, it has a lot of sort of particular challenges unique to that, that That's issue. Right. That's right. Sean, you hear the list that Dan just laid out. How do you get a, a bill like this passed? Do you know what I mean? It, it, it would be an enormous amount of hurdles to get across. It's so wild to me to understand like the political nature of New Mexico when you look at you know Democrat-controlled Senate, House, Governor, right. and so many Democratic voters here. Like a lot of progressive agendas, as we spoke about earlier, you know, pass through. And it's and and well, it's it's nice to call for a ban on assault weapons. Mm -hmm. New Mexico is still a gun state, and that crosses all political boundaries and lines, even if you're not a registered voter or care right. to involved, be involved in politics. Um, and so I think that like lawmakers are listening to their constituents. Even the progressive lawmakers that we see from Albuquerque and from Santa Fe, they all have constituents that are gun owners. And so supporting a gun ban is something that just ultimately goes against people that mm -hmm. vote for them. You know, I know as a post-session uh, press conference you were aware of last weekend, the governor said she is, quote, going to keep trying, end quote, on crime-related bills of the near 40 this year. Only 10 made it to her desk, 10 out of 40. I guess that just explains how difficult it is to move forward on gun stuff, isn't it? But could they signal this as success, perhaps, those 10? So 10 pretty significant? Well, it's a quarter. When yeah. you think about it, and, and you said at the beginning there were 1,000 bills introduced and that's only right. 240 passed, so that's not a bad um, Good comparison number. there. Yeah. I, I think one of the things that I hope everyone stops and reflect is that mm -hmm. legislation doesn't necessarily stop crime. Right. And perhaps right. they need to look at some other things. And I would look at the court system and whether we're enforcing, you know, they always say, are we enforcing the gun laws we have? Mm -hmm. Well, are we funding our court system? Do we have public defenders? Do we Thank have you. district attorneys? Can we get people convicted quickly? Right. If we did those things and ensured they were safe in jail, we could lock up criminals and then they wouldn't be out, mm -hmm. you know, doing things again. Yeah. So I, I think the approach to reducing crime needs to stop from adding penalties or taking away guns mm -hmm. that you can't pass anyway because it's unconstitutional mm -hmm. to maybe getting the laws in the books and forcing them and locking up the bad people that need to be locked mm -hmm. up. Good points there. Uh, shifting to election stuff, guys. Uh, Senate Bill 73 would have opened New Mexico's primary elections to non-party affiliated voters. Uh, Sean, this is a big one. I got personal friends who are dying to see this pass. I'm a decline to state. A lot of people are. What, what happened here? Was this just too much of a threat to the status quo? I did. The, the arguments around it, I'm curious why, why this didn't uh, make it. You know, I think that that's what you hit it on the point is like the yeah. status quo there is really concerned about what this could do, how you would open that up. Um, I was surprised that it died quickly. That mm -hmm. it, did, it didn't make it very much, you know, as as far as we had, and the debate on it didn't go too too substantial. But mm -hmm. like, you know, I, I'm still curious to know why something like this is not popular when I believe there are a lot of independent New Mexico voters who want to have right. open primary elections here. Right. Back to the idea: who are you supporting, your constituents or yourself? And it seemed like in this one, lawmakers are out there for themselves. We've got uh, numbers from NM Political Report: nearly 23 percent of all registered voters, guys, in the state are non-party affiliated. I would think, Dan, this would have some traction. Oh, some backstop, some draft, some something <laughs> uh, to give uh, courage to lawmakers to be able to do this. What was your sense of the argument and why this didn't pass? Well, I think, you know, there you, it's kind of a glass half full, glass half empty thing. First mm -hmm. of all, 
open primaries um, did pass the Senate, a full chamber. That's never happened before. Fair point. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, so so I think if you're a supporter of the idea, you can argue that maybe there's a little more momentum. Mm -hmm. um, you know, on the other side, I think that, you know, as Sean mentioned, you know, legislators, these are people who've been elected under the current system, mm -hmm. and they're used to talking to, you know, voters in the primary. Um, they know that this system works for them, and there's got to be some anxiety about, um, oh, do I, do I need to start tailoring my advertising to some broader group of voters? You know, there's probably just, I think, some, some sense of, well, I, I don't, you know, this is unknown. I don't know if this is going to be right for me, much right. less for the state. Right. So um, anyway, I, I think it's an issue that's not going away. You know, it did advance a bit this session. Um, you know, as Sean mentioned, it didn't really take off on the House side at all. But um, but there are some signs that maybe the landscape is Something changing. to be said for getting out of Senate. I mean, that, that's yeah. no small thing. Something to be said for that, certainly. Uh, Dan, when we had you halfway through the session, you did a Facebook Live with me. We're very appreciative of that. But at that point, I'm so interested to talk about this. We talked about the modernization of the state legislature. At the time, you said it was a partisan issue with Democrats loudly in favor. And you also mentioned the proposal of lengthening sessions during even-numbered years. Uh, <laughs> had a little more momentum at that time, but it didn't mm -hmm. quite carry. None of these things seem to work, despite the public in many polls saying, we want some change here. What happened? What's, what's the disconnect here? Yeah, I, I think that this is another thing where there's kind of a split between the chambers. The House Democrats um, really seem to uh, be pushing this idea. Sure. They, they are younger, I think, in general. Um, they are also um, more women, as Inez mm -hmm. mentioned. Um, the Senate is a little older, a little more male-dominated. Um, and so y you saw like the, the proposal to establish a salary commission, um, that one ran aground in a Senate committee. So it did advance through the House. Right. Um, I think they have a little more convincing to do with some of these older legislators like um, George Munoz, the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. They've got some, some convincing to do on that side. So this is, you know, it's not just partisan dynamics at play, but also differences between the two chambers. Um, mm. And then the lengthening of the sessions, mm -hmm. um, you know, that's an idea that has sometimes picked up Republican support in the past. Mm -hmm. um, this year, it, you know, it advanced, and I think that the, the, the leadership just decided not to spend a lot of time on it this time, you know. Right. And in some cases, they can wait because these are constitutional amendments that wouldn't go on the ballot until 2024 anyway, so right. there may be some sense, well, Maybe we'll take, maybe they'll take another stab at them in, in you know, next year. Yeah, I don't speak about that if you would. I mean, again, is this too big a bite for older legislators to, to even consider something I, like this? I think a lot of people, once they get elected, uh, you know, they got elected under the system, it works for them and they don't see a need to change. And, right. and I think the people who want to modernize the, the legislature are going to have to make a, a better case, not just that they're enriching their pockets, which, but right. that it's fair to be paid for work. Right. And I, and I maybe start with some middle reforms. We had some columnists that wrote about, you need more staff members because they do a lot of the work. Mm -hmm. So can you expand the staff? Mm -hmm. Can you focus on interim committees and pay people more for when they're working during their time off? Right. Because they do a lot of work for not very much recompense. And There seemed to be general agreement you know, on, this, they, on this issue beforehand. Yeah. I, I can't think of any Republican uh, right. you know, elected who didn't have the same problem as Democrats, not enough staff. Right. 
And that was the betting money going in. If there was one that was going to pass, it would be that one. Yeah. I don't understand why, why we can't have staff. <laughs> it's just something very weird about that. Go ahead and pick up on that if you would uh, show it, it as was, well. It was so fascinating to watch mm -hmm. that debate and watch it dissolve because I'm also, we have to remember, the voters were going to have to approve this. This was, this was, an, uh, this was an attempt Thank to you. make a constitutional amendment. And so as I'm watching the debate, I'm seeing these you know, lawmakers not even agreeing and muddle it at all. I'm like, you can't solve this part and figure it out. How are you going to pitch this to voters? Right. So I wonder if at some point they recognized how are we going to ask for a raise in this economy in our next election cycle? It's a bitter pill. The, the idea of paying all these members like 80 grand each, that's just a big pill for New Mexico. We're going to have to chop at this one. Thanks for everyone who contributed to the podcast this week. As always, don't forget to follow our social media pages. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube throughout the week. We'll be posting updates and other news items leading up to our show on Friday night. Thanks again, everyone. I'm senior producer Lou DeVizio for Monday, March 27th, 2023. This is New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. Have a great week, everyone.